Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. Long View is a happy fun member of Dice Tower Time Super Fun Show. <laughs> really? I just want to see if anybody actually listens to this anymore, <laughs> or whether they've gotten so used to me saying the same thing over and over that they just kind of tune it out. Uh, <laughs> what was that? that? Well, I kind of do pre-record it, but I record it for the guests on. Anyway... Yeah, so this is The Long View, and we're part of the Dice Tower Network, and the Dice Tower Network has a lot of great sister podcasts that you should totally check out. I want to send a thank you out to them. Uh, The Long View is generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. I've talked a lot about Gamesurplus over the years just because they're so fantastic. Um, I love their selection. I uh, love their pricing. I love their care with my packages. But mostly, I love their service. Um, Back when the store was owned by Thor, it was just uh, an incredible amount of personal service. Um, He cared so much for his customers um, and was always willing to try and find anything that I was looking for. And then when ownership transferred over to Velma and Amos, um, they never skipped a beat. It was exactly the same level of dedication, exactly the same level of care. Um, and, and that same kind of personalized service, it's almost like a personal shopper for me. Uh, if I'm looking for something, I can shoot Velma an email, uh, ask her if she can track something down for me. And almost before I know it, uh, you know, she's shot me an email back and said, hey, you know, I, I found that it'll be coming in on the next shipment. Um, and they're really just a great resource uh, for gamers who are looking to kind of get those games uh, early, you know, those Essen kind of titles and uh, titles that you can really only get uh, over in Europe. She has shipments coming in all the time. And so uh, I kind of look at them as sort of like a boutique sort of store that's bringing in imports, you know, imports that I can't get over here easily uh, or games that I'm really intrigued about that I know are going to be, you know, picked up by somebody later. Uh, but for right now, hey, you know, I, I can write to her and try and get a copy of Noya Heimat. And sure enough, I was able to get one. Um, you know, if I'm looking for a Hospital Connect, I can get that. Um, you know, no matter what it is that uh, you're looking for, if you shoot them an email, they will track it down for you. And, you know, when they get it for you, they're going to give you that premium service, but not at a premium cost. And I think that's another really important distinction for them. Uh, you know, we all know that there are other stores and other websites that will bring in, uh, especially after the big shows like Essen, they'll import, uh, you know, some titles. And it is expensive. It is not easy. Uh, but then they'll charge you kind of accordingly. You know, you'll, you'll be looking at 80 90 100 $120 for a game or a title that's come over just so that you can kind of check it out before everybody else. And, and kind of be the, the person that's there and, and can kind of get a first look at it and really have that excitement of trying something new. Um, you know, when you order things from Game Surplus, you don't really seem to ever get that surcharge kind of a feeling. You know, uh, everything is, is very fair. Everything's very reasonable, um, super low prices, and just great service. So uh, check out gamesurplus.com the next time you're looking to put in an order or the next time you're looking to find something unusual. And if you do, please be sure to tell them the long view sent you. I also want to send a shout-out to my local game store, uh, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, They are a growing resource in the area for gamers, whether you're a video gamer, board gamer, a collectible card game enthusiast. uh, They've got everything there for you. 
Um, one of the best things about the place, aside from uh, the, the owner and the friendly staff, is you have just a huge amount of space. So there's always room for going in there and uh, setting up a game and meeting up with some friends. And it's right there on Main Street in Stroudsburg. There's lots of other great little stores you can stop by. Um, so the next time you're in the area, stop by uh, the Gamer's Edge on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, conveniently located off of Interstate 80. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very proud uh, to be joined by another first-time contributor. I am on a roll here. Um, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to Derek Davis, um, who has been waiting patiently uh, to talk about one of his favorite games, Navajo Wars, which is going to be the subject of our discussion tonight. So, Derek, hello and uh, welcome, and uh, thanks for being on the show. I'm glad to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem at all. It's uh, my pleasure entirely. And so uh, we're really kind of uh, interested in talking with you about this. We, we actually had been working for quite some time, uh, just as by way of a little bit of background, uh, to have a three-kind-of-person episode. We were going to have uh, Travis on um, and you and myself talking about this game. And it just seemed like no matter what we did, first it was my schedule that was terrible. Um, and then I think you had something going on for one week we were trying and then the last few times that we've tried a, a few different dates back and forth and uh, finally Travis is like look uh, I, I just don't think we're going to ever be able to get the stars aligned, unfortunately. He said, so, uh, you know, he's going to bow out. And so that gave us the opportunity to finally get this thing scheduled. And so as much as uh, I miss having the opportunity to have all three of us be- have a chance to talk about this game, because it's such an intriguing title, I'm really happy that uh, you were able to join me and willing to uh, come uh, mano y mano and talk about Navajo Wars. So um, first, uh, what I'd like to do is just give you a chance uh, to to kind of introduce yourself because you do some podcasting as well so let's not be too modest can you tell us a little bit about yourself your show uh where people can find you and uh some of the things that you're active in and the things that you're doing with the community here absolutely uh i contribute to the what did you play this week podcast thing which is an unruly name with an acronym that is also very difficult to remember uh <laughs> but uh brand- that's the first step in good marketing <laughs> yeah. right <laughs> exactly. The name's too long. Maybe the acronym works. Nope. Okay, well, let's just go with it then. Uh, yeah, no, I I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I recently moved back here from uh, Northern California, and I was kind of getting into Twitter, getting into the community a little bit more. And I found Brandon Kempf on Twitter and saw that he was uh, from Missouri. And so we just started talking a little bit, noticed that he had his own podcast. And I just had this brain blast one day of, hey, here's an idea for a segment. And I pitched it to him and he said, yeah, do it. And so I've been doing that now for 20 straight episodes. It's a weekly podcast. Uh, so basically what my segment is, is I play one game for 10 straight weeks and I evolve through the review. It's called an evolving review. And I just give my thoughts on the different things that occur to me as I continue to play this game, not, uh, quantity, but for quality. So 
I'm not trying to jam in a bunch of plays as fast as I can. I'm trying to stretch it out and and see what the experience is like as I play it over a longer period of time. So that's kind of the the gist of the segment. Um, I'm also starting a series. Uh, hopefully, uh, the Dice Tower will continue to air it on solo gaming. So I had my first segment a couple weeks ago, and the next two should be dropping here in the next couple episodes. So that's what I've been up to. Well, thank you very much for letting people know about uh, the podcast um, and for uh, you know what what it is that you've been doing. Uh, I did actually uh, hear your segment on the Dice Tower. I was listening to that. Uh, I think it was last week, um, and so that was kind of fun uh, to get to hear that because solo gaming is something that uh, you know a lot of people are very uh, passionate and interested in, um, and you know it's it's one of those things that I think is particularly really really helpful at certain times in your life. Um, there are some people who uh, absolutely just love solo board gaming all the time, exclusively. Uh, and then there are people like myself who kind of, uh, you know, would solo game more as like a, a thing of necessity um, and then kind of left that and, and was fortunate enough to find people who I could play games with on a regular basis, um, you know, starting with my wife and then having that group grow. Um, and then I, I kind of like would occasionally drift back to solo gaming, you know, um, um, when there were kind of interests that I had that others in my group didn't have. And so for me, kind of solo gaming kind of waxes and wanes. Um, but it is something that uh, I, I know that there's a, a lot of people out there who are interested in. Um, and so I think that that segment that you're talking about is something that's going to be useful to a lot of people. Um, you know, you have uh, a lot of different podcasts out there. You know, give a shout out to uh, the Low Player Count podcast. Um, you know, there's uh, the One Player podcast. I think that uh, from time to time. Uh, I've heard some of their episodes. Um, and, and so uh, you're a, another voice kind of talking about these uh, kinds of ideas and topics on the Dice Tower, which I think is great. And then your format for your reviews is really fascinating because it kind of actually fits the theme of, of this show as well, this idea of kind of taking a more careful kind of longer view, a more studied approach to a game. So um, I, I love that idea about that sort of, you know, after each play, what kind of occurs to you, what new thoughts pop into your head. So I would encourage people to go and check that out because uh, if you like the long view, I think you're going to find a good match there in your podcast. So thanks for sharing uh, all of that uh, for people out there who might not have been aware of what you were doing. Yeah, thanks. And I would say that you are definitely an inspiration in some of that. So I appreciate what you do as well. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say. Um, okay, so um, now that we know a little bit about you, um, let's talk a little bit about Navajo Wars. Um, so this is a game uh, designed by uh, Joel Toppin. Uh, this was published by GMT Games, and this game came out in 2013. Um, this game is one that kind of came out on uh, GMT's kind of P500 list, and it kind of immediately caught my attention. Uh, as soon as I saw it, I was interested because I'm interested in anything to do with Native American history. And so when I saw it and then I kind of dug into it, I was really intrigued because it was going to be, it looked to me, telling this kind of story in history from much more the Native perspective 
rather than the typical kind of almost colonialism sort of expansionist kind of perspective. Um, and so right away I was kind of intrigued. And then as I followed the game on sort of P500 and then I started seeing like the board art and seeing, uh, you know, the kind of the card driven aspect of it. These were all things that were just kind of like sending off little like check boxes in my head. Like, yep, like that. Yep, that looks great. <laughs> yep, I love that. Yep. Uh, and so I, I, I ordered it. I P500 it and uh, was really happy when it came. Um, you know, GMT has gone from uh, being sort of this small uh, kind of like war game only kind of grognard kind of publisher <laughs> Uh, to become this kind of giant. I mean, they, they put out just beautiful products, and their games are really kind of spanning so many different kinds of topics and areas of interest. And so I was really thrilled when I opened up that box, and then I, I tried to read the rule book, and I failed miserably. And then <laughs> I went through the playbook, and I kind of, I actually kind of let went through the walkthrough scenario kind of in there to try to kind of wrap my mind around this game because there was so much going on that was so very different. And so what I recognized immediately were two things. Number one, it was hitting all of those marks that I anticipated it was going to hit, which of course is important because a lot of times if you have certain expectations or or anticipations and they're not met, you're kind of disappointed, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But then number two... I was even more intrigued once I actually started playing it when I realized how deep the game went. You know, this was not a game about military conquest or, uh, you know, things like that. It was not like a straight game. Like, it was more about culture. It was more about trying to preserve these people's way of life in the face of this sort of relentless onslaught of pressure that you know you knew was never going to end it was almost like kind of like telling me this story of like how long can the navajo hold on like how long can they hold out um how long can they uh, resist kind of um having their own sort of internal decisions affected by what's going on in the world outside them um and so the generational aspect of it and so i was like totally wrapped up in in this game and really just enjoyed it so that's kind of my backstory with the game um how about yours what was it that got you interested in it yeah very similar at the end but very different at the beginning for me i uh... I got into gaming uh, and quickly found that I did not have a, a play group uh, that was going to be consistent for me. And so I started dabbling just in some solo games like Onirim and, you know, very simple stuff like that, Pandemic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so on. And I found that I enjoyed that, but I didn't really know how to engage in it very well. And it was just kind of getting my feet wet. And then uh, I was listening to your podcast uh, and you dropped this game just in passing. You you mentioned it. And I thought, that sounds really interesting. I'm not much of a history buff. Uh, I'm not much of a historical war gamer at all. In fact, this right. I, I think this is the first GMT game I purchased. Uh, oh, and okay. so I just thought, you know what? I really I think this is an intriguing idea. And so I kind of had this schedule where I would read a lot of novels. And so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop reading for now. And this is going to be my novel 
this is going to be the book that I'm reading, quote unquote. And so I picked it up and I knew it was just going to be an uphill battle to really learn how to play it. (laughs) But I I, I just invested my time and thought, I got to get into this. I've got to try it. And so, uh, as you said, uh, you know, pick up the rule book and you fail miserably. Um, (laughs) uh, I I quickly found Joel's instructional videos that went along with his uh, playbook. And so I just set it up. And what would happen is I'd come home from work. We had just moved to Missouri. Missouri. Uh, I'd come home from work, we'd get our son to bed, and I would just sit in a room by myself for two hours going through this video and trying to track all the different moves and what Joel was doing to introduce the game and all the different decisions you could make. And, and I quickly realized that, okay, I'm really going to have to invest a, a lot of my intellect in this um, so that I can get the best experience. And that honestly is what made me love this game so much. I found myself very rarely caring about the win condition. The only thing mm-hmm, I cared mm-hmm. about was I can that I could continue to play the game. So, you know, those victory point checks throughout, you kind of go, okay, as long as I can get those and keep playing the game, I don't care. Oh, I suffered a minor defeat. Oh, well. That was amazing. <laughs> that's and so that's right, when right. I, when I experienced that the first few times I played it, I knew this was a game that is going to stay in my collection as long as I can keep it. Um, even if I only get to play it one or two times a year, it's worth it for me. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, what I need to do today? I need to go play Navajo Wars, and I may not do it right, again right. for eight months, but I need to do it today. Uh, and so that's that's really what made it stick in my collection for me. Well, thanks for sharing that perspective because uh, it's interesting because, like you said, we came at it from two totally different uh, sort of mindsets as far as like one, you know, being really interested in the history and, and you not really originally being so uh, interested in that. And so, you know, you would come home, you know, uh, there in Missouri, you'd sit down in that room and, and you would look at those videos with Joel and say, Joel, show me. Right. Yep, absolutely. You see what I did there? You see what I did there? The show me state. You see that? <laughs> yep, very nice. That's good done. stuff right there. <laughs> <laughs> and that joke will get me banned from Missouri. Anyway, um, yeah. I'll probably no. make you a hero. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I mean, I didn't see those videos uh, either because I was too stupid to look for them, or maybe they weren't there originally. I don't know. Yeah. But I, yeah, I kind of slogged through that playbook, and, and that was like really helpful. Um, but I think the videos, and especially if Joel did them, uh, you know, himself, I think that would have been fascinating. So uh, they're still there. Yeah. Yes? And you, he just he walks through every single move that he has in the playbook. They're great. And really, the reason I found them is because I'm so addicted to watch it played. I always go and look to Mm -hmm, see if he mm -hmm. has an instructional video uh, because it's just it's if he has one, I might as well watch that while I'm reading the rules. Right. And so obviously I knew he wasn't going to have one for Navajo Wars, but I just uh, looked for a tutorial and that's what popped up. And so it was really, really helpful in learning the game. That's great advice for people who are, uh, you know, looking to learn the game because it is it's it's a very dense game um, and it is a game that will engage you in ways that uh, I'm not used to being engaged. You know, like you said, I I tend to be kind of competitive. Um, you know, I'm not super competitive, but I like to win and I try to win and, um, I'm happy when I win. And sometimes I'm a little grr if, you know, things don't, uh, necessarily fall my way. Um, uh, you know, and so, but this game really, like you said, it's not really about the winning. It's not really about that. It's, it's about 
that story that unfolds as you play the game and as you kind of see like you know just like you said can can i keep playing you know can do we get to keep going do i get to see more you know what's going to happen next you know what's what's going to happen oh that fort just popped up there you know it's like oh man you know what are we going to do about that how are we going to deal with it um and and so you know over time you just end up kind of getting really wrapped up in the game and wrapped up in the story that it's telling um so what i'm curious about one of the questions i want to ask you is with all of this did this get you interested in any way like did you start to dig in or creep around a little bit and check out some of the history did it drive you in that direction or was the game that outlet for you entirely in and of itself no it definitely drove me into it um i i didn't get quite into the literature just did some searching around you know every time you flip a card and it references some historical character i go oh who is that like kit carson go and kind of learn a little bit about him what's this guy up to uh what what's the situation the historical situation but what really engaged me in the game itself um was feeling like I was put in the place, like you said, of uh, the Navajo people, uh, the Diné, as they're called in the game, and trying to experience what this was like for them from their perspective. I I think this is the first game that I really played that made me realize that literature, um, you know, novels and so on, aren't the only outlet of creativity to help us understand what the world looks like from a minority's perspective, um, that there are actually ways that you can incorporate that into, into games. And that's, uh, that to me just kind of blew my mind and made me think I need to look, uh, for more games like this and encourage people to keep making games like this, because it really did change my perspective on, uh, on this subject and of course uh for the navajo people in particular yeah yeah i mean i would agree it, it did the same uh you know for me and i'm really looking forward to the next one in the series which is going to be dealing with the comanche um and that one is going to be coming out relatively soon i think i've p500 did that one as well um you know it's it's just it's there are games, and, and this is, a, I think, a growing movement that you're sort of talking about, this idea of games being a medium to uh, give people an opportunity to learn about something uh, and challenging you to learn about something. And we've talked about this on the podcast before with other guests at other times, you know, this notion. Uh, I remember when I talked with Brian Mayer. Now, he's the guy that did Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Uh, that is a game that will fully engage you and will immerse you sort of in, a, in, in an emotional way with the topic that you might not become invested in in the same way just by reading. Um, you know, as you realize that these little tan cubes are people and you're losing these people. You know, these people aren't going to make it. I have, these people are going to be sacrificed so that I can get these people out of harm's way. And, you know, these people that were almost home free are now straight back down in the deep south in the market. And they're they're going to be reentering the slavery system, that whole machine down there yet again. Um, and, and it just evokes uh, a reaction from you. Um, I think some of the coin games do that extremely well, too. Uh, you know, you're looking at a situation, uh, say, in a game like Cuba Libre, 
And as you play the game, it really challenges you to think about things from the different perspectives. You know, when you see the government's collusion with the casinos during that game, as, you know, the two players will kind of naturally sort of pair up from time to time, you can sort of begin to understand sort of the resentment that was building um, among the, the people who were having to live under that system, under those conditions. And so, you know, I think you're right. There are games like this that kind of not only are fun to play and engaging to play and challenging, but they're also challenging you on other levels as well. So, uh, you know, before we go any further, Derek, would you mind just kind of, (laughs) this is going to be a tall order, my friend. Would you mind kind of giving just a basic overview for people who maybe haven't had a chance to play of just kind of the, the, the main sort of ideas and systems in the game, because there's really too much for anybody to be able to describe it all in an audio format. I, I really think uh, you're absolutely right about that. You kind of almost need that video. You need to see a lot of stuff. But could you maybe give us a general overview? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'll kind of weave in and out of narrative and mechanics, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm going to try to stick as close to a, a narrative explanation as I can. Um, and then just kind of take you on a tour maybe of the board. And so essentially what you're uh, what you're looking at in this game is you're trying to balance your culture and your military as the the Navajo people, the Diné, uh, in such a way that you are exceeding the morale and the ferocity of your opponent. So the opponent in this game is going to be uh, the Spanish, the Mexican, and the uh, American forces as you kind of move through about 200 years of history or so. And so as these people who are uh, embedded in this place in the Southwest, uh, namely the Canyon de Chez, which is kind of the the stronghold of the uh, the Navajo people in this game, you're trying to push back just enough to stay alive as long as you can against these forces that are encroaching on this territory that has been yours for as long as anyone knows, right? And so uh, the way the the game tries to help you uh, through the mechanics is uh, they've they've got these this map uh, which looks like kind of like a animal skin, right, with stones right, right. placed out on it, um, as though you're looking at a strategic map of your tribal leader who's trying to show you the the points that need to be kept in order to protect the the holy land uh, that is the canyon de Chez. and so you are pushing your families out to the borders of some of these places in order to keep the forces back uh, and the way that that Joel designed this is that you have these boxes down at the bottom with different families and you have a place for your male counters, your female and your children, uh, and they represent a family. And every time you get a set, you have a family that can function in the game uh, and you put them on the board and they represent they almost become like a tribe in and of themselves. Uh, right, right. That's out on the outskirt in these different areas. And part of the the genius mechanics of the game, in my opinion, is that you need to keep them spread out because uh, if you kind of think like Pandemic, you build a deck and there are certain cards in each section of the deck. So you split them up like into five different piles and kind of shuffle them up each, but keep the key cards in order that kind of progress the history or the story. And 
as you hit each of those cards, you're going to get victory point checks. And essentially the way you you keep ahead of those is you stay in as many different territories as possible. Uh, and so that gives you certain amounts of victory points. Some are worth two, some three, some four, etc. And so it really, encur- well, it doesn't encourage you. It forces you to stay spread out in, in order to protect right. your land. Um, and you kind of alluded to this, but I, what I love about that that whole system is that it really forces you to admit the fact that you are just delaying the inevitable. You will not win. Um, you know, the, the game will allow you to win, but ultimately the, uh, the forces are going to push on you so hard that you can no longer hold your territory with the, uh, with the military and culture that you possess. And so it kind of, it really does for me at least create that tension. Cause I kind of want to just hole up and, and use the stronghold, but the the game doesn't allow you to do that because history doesn't allow the the Navajo to experience it that way. Um, so I thought that was just a, a wonderful mechanic. Um, so the way you're balancing your culture and your uh, and your military is you are using your elders and their wisdom to kind of advance your military enough so that you can keep the the morale of the enemy low. Um, but at, every time you increase your military you're decreasing your culture you're losing something of who you are because you're right. responding to the the need to fight against this new enemy um which once again to me is just such a wonderful storytelling mechanic every time i perform that action where i'm praying that my elders will be able to increase my military at the same time i'm realizing wow i'm doing this at the cost of what we are as a people so i I just i love that mechanic of the game so the the whole uh trajectory then is you are trying to push back with this increased military uh and and slowly decreasing culture you're trying to advance forward and push the spanish back or the mexican forces or the american forces back into santa fe which is like right on the right border of the map um Right. And as you do this, you're gaining hopefully some goods um, by by performing raids. But ultimately, what you're doing is you're poking the bear. Um, you are you are just <laughs> asking for uh, these forces to begin to subjugate you. And so there are right. these cubes uh, that you pull out. So every time you pour, you uh, perform a raid, you're going to pull a cube out of a bag. And depending on the color, you're going to either maybe get a sheep or get a horse or you're going to get um, a, a servant or you're going to get a subjugation cube, and I don't know about you, but that was always every time I drew one of those, I just yeah, I just look up in the air and go, really? <laughs> there's only th- the worst. <laughs> there's three yeah. of them in there, and it seems like those are the first three cubes I draw. They're always, game. always, no matter what you draw out of that bag, <laughs> it's like it's always the, you just kind of look around and then you empty the bag. Did you ever empty the bag? Oh yeah, just to make sure that like, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe I've got the wrong distribution in here or something. Yeah. And so you empty the bag and you're like, surely there must be some mistake. No, yep. no. And then you start like wondering, like, are these cubes a little bit larger? Do they cut them a little bigger? You know, is there is there some way that I'm like subconsciously always picking them? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It was like a devious way to like make the game move along or something. Yeah. Forcing me to always pick those cubes. So I, I, I definitely feel you there. I'll have to ask Joel if he did that on purpose. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, so you're pulling these cubes out and it's kind of representing uh, what's happening to uh, these forces that are experiencing these raids and they're getting angry and they're just going to build up steam and ultimately they're going to come back at you and they're going to hit you pretty hard. And this is, uh, I, I've seen some criticism about this on, on BGG, which kind of confounds me, but this is the, to me, the, the core genius of the game and that is the ai because we are talking about a solitaire game here and if you don't have at least a decent ai it's going to feel a lot like every other solitaire kind of puzzle game and and i'm not saying anything bad about matt leacock i love pandemic i love thunderbirds which he just released as well but they're a different kind of experience fundamentally because the ai is really just a deck that you're flipping so you have the deck that you're flipping in this game but you also have these columns of of actions that your enemy is just waiting to take against you and every time you flip a card they're going to get action points and depending on how many they have they're going to be able to execute these different orders uh going down the column uh but if that was all it was, you would just say, oh, well, then you just have this set column and you can just figure out, OK, in order to beat this column of of orders, I can just do this, 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 this and this. But every turn you're rolling dice and you're flipping the counters or you're you're switching them from an active to a uh, from the passive to the active row. And so you can never really predict what your enemy is going to do. You can have a fairly good idea, but if you prepare too much for that one thing, it's going to come back and bite you because you're going to roll something. It's going to flip and you're going to say, oh, I prepared for this action. And now all of a sudden they're going to start building instead of attacking me. Um, and so now I have, like you said, now I have forts in my territories and I was just prepared for them to try to subjugate me, um, you know. And so there's this there's this constant uh, decision making process of, okay, how can I really prepare for what the enemy's about to do to me? And I know it seems really complicated. And if you look at the rules, it's going to take you a while to see the process, but there are really only three things you can do to prepare for all of this. Um, and I, I think they're, they're pretty simple. Um, you're, you're either going to let time pass in other words you're going to uh kind of wait it out and wait for new leaders to emerge um it's it's kind of the most complicated action in the game but i I think it's uh a really wonderfully thematic action that you can take with the passage of time your elders die your families mature and you get new families or tribes that you can put in different territories and it's just a really uh fascinating mechanic um the other thing you can do is take actions and it just lists a bunch of things you can do you can plant corn uh you can move you can do x y and z i won't describe all of them to you because we'd be here all night um (laughs) and and then uh what i really love is the uh uh, the first thing that he actually uh, presents to you, which is the planning phase. Um, and if you if you really delve deeply into the game, you'll realize that planning is the thing I think that Joel as the designer wants you to do most. Um, because if you read through all of the operations cards, which is the deck that you're kind of flipping through as you go, um, the only thing that you get a bonus reward for doing when, uh, is the, the planning phase. Um, so if you execute a planning 
planning operation, then you get to do this extra thing. And so what you do in a planning operation is you go to your elders and you say, uh, we need more military or, you know, we, we need this, that, or the other thing. And, uh, there, uh, there's a list of things that you can see once again in the rule book that I won't go over. Cause again, we'd be here forever. Uh, but the idea being that you're kind of consulting your, your elders and they're, they're attempting to affect this kind of change in your society so that you can better fight against these forces. So those are really the three major things that you're trying to do in the game to win. Um, quote unquote win uh, to succeed in staving off the forces that are trying to subjugate you. Well, thanks for that overview because that gave a, a lot of detail and a very uh, kind of a clear and concise way. You did a much better job than I could have done for sure. Um, you know, and, and there are so many little nuances to the game, you know, like you mentioned corn um, and boy, you know, uh, losing your cornfields um, can be absolutely devastating. Um, you know, you can you can lose those uh, through any number of different terrible things. Uh, I also seem to remember um, in uh, one of the games I played, uh, horses. Yeah, yep. um, very very important. Yeah. Um, you know, and and sort of your your herds. You know, your your. Uh, these kind of herds of horses that the people, uh, you know, generally had. And so you've got all of these little elements um, that you're trying to kind of juggle. You know, you're trying to, um, you know, keep yourself, as you said, populated, you know, spread out, um, kind of just making sure that you never get like kind of cornered, you know, you don't get literally boxed in in that canyon. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you also have to understand there's going to be all these encroachments. And like you said, that sort of cultural loss through military ramp up, I think is just an incredibly fascinating kind of component to the game. So I wanted to kind of circle back to that and sort of echo that because there will be, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like a necessary evil, um, you, you kind of have to do that at various stages of the game. And yet you can see that sort of cultural erosion almost. Um, you know, the Navajo were generally, historically, one of the more sort of peaceful groups of, of people. Um, you know, when you're looking at indigenous Native Americans. Um, and so this this idea that he captured of this sort of cultural erosion because of uh, having to sort of respond militarily to these outside threats, outside cultures, um, outside influences, and what that does to you, um, those kinds of things, I think was just a really, really clever and unique and sort of fascinating way to deal with that subject matter. And so, you know, it's really kind of got me anticipating, like, how's he going to handle the Comanche? Because the Comanche were a more aggressive uh, kind of Native American group, right? And so, uh, you know, I'm going to be, like, so curious to see how those two feel different, you know? Um, There are so many different cultures that could be explored using this kind of game system with this sort of um, huge amount of historical information that we have, sad though it may be, um, you know, there's just it's just rife with possibilities of all of these different kinds of themes that could be explored. So uh, I really did appreciate that about that design, uh, that that whole notion you're talking about of sometimes when you're doing the things you need to do to survive, it chips away at you. 
um, it chips away at those things that kind of made you who you were, which is the way you put it, which I really appreciate. So um, let's return back to the AI of the game, because that was one of the things that I kind of found to be a bit of a barrier for me. And so I was wondering if you had any advice for people in how to kind of uh, handle that, because the flipping of the counters from one state to another and the movement of them was one of the things that took me the longest time to try to figure out. Um, and there was part of it, I think, was what you already talked about, was the frustration I felt as a player, you know, immersing myself in the role of the Diné uh, of not, you know, I think I had it figured out and then I was totally wrong. And so <laughs> dealing with those consequences was frustrating. But the AI I had a little bit of uh, trouble with. So I was wondering if you go into a little bit more detail about the AI, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So the way it works mechanically is... Uh, you have these uh, little counters that are labeled from uh, A to N. And so at the beginning of the game, you're going to remove two of them. And so whatever you have left, you're going to sort alphabetically first in the active row and then in the passive row. So the right-hand row is active and the left-hand row is passive. And at the beginning of every enemy activation, you're going to roll two dice and depending on the numbers you roll, so let's say you roll a one and a six. So you'd look at the the counter in in uh, the column, the first one, number one, and you'd say, does it have a red banner on it? If it does, you just leave it alone. But if it doesn't, then you flip it. So that was the first counter that's waiting to be activated. And if you think, okay, I know exactly what the enemy's going to do, they're going to do this, and then you roll a one everything can change if you have to flip that counter over and then all of a sudden they're going to do something different. Um, So part of, uh, I guess, part of kind of the the cheating aspect of the game is it once you get to really know the counters, uh, you know what's on the back of them as well. And so you can kind of prepare uh, and make sure, okay, well, I know it says subjugate on one side, but it says build on the other. So I need to be prepared for both of those things. Um, but the other piece is that if you roll doubles, so if I roll two ones, now the counter in the passive row is going to move over to the active row and switch places. So now there are three possibilities that that I have to to be aware of. Um, so uh, what I like about that is it really does kind of simulate to me anyways, a brain, um, mainly because they're all the actions of the opposing forces are pretty good. And so it's not like they're making weird, random decisions. They're all good mm-hmm, decisions. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of you trying to figure out which one they're going to make. And you can never really be sure. Um, the, and so that's how you kind of sort out what actions going to take place. But then the other variable that comes in is on the card that that's kind of governing the turn. So like I said, with pandemic, you flip a card and, and obey its rules, right? Um, in, in this game as well, you're going to flip a card and it's going to tell you how many action points the enemy gets. So let's say they get four action points and then you go to activate that first counter if it says five on it, you don't have to activate it because they don't have enough action points to execute it. But if it has any number between one and four, and sometimes it might even say one, two, four, you have to spend as many of those action points as you 
can to perform as many of those particular actions on that chit. And so you're, you're kind of looking at the action points and trying to think, okay, I know that they're not going to do anything this turn because the value on that, on that, on that chit is way too high. So I'm going to get essentially a free turn without them taking an action as long as I don't roll a number that makes it flip, right? And so there are some of those things that, that you have to consider as well that I really like. But you can also find yourself in a situation where they've built up 10 or, or 11 action points, and they're going to trigger like three of these things right in a row. Um, right, and they're right. really just going to pound on you. And so for every turn of reprieve that you get you get an then you're just you know you're going to get beat down the next turn so i i really enjoy that mechanic well thanks for giving more detail about that because that was one of the things that uh, i really struggled with that the the flipping of the counters uh the swapping of the counters in particular um it seems like i mess that up all the time like when i i remember early on making the mistake of when i moved from passive to active i flipped it I, I don't know why I did that, but I thought somewhere in the rules it told me I was supposed to flip it. Um, and that just, uh, you know, it just messed with my head uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, I'd kind of gotten used to the sort of flowchart kind of AI systems that I'd seen in Volco Runkey's games. Uh, and this one, for some reason, maybe because it was just a little... Uh, a little more graphically abstract, um, not as much of a flowchart as what I was used to looking at when when considering a sort of complex AI like the one you're describing. Uh, it just really gave me fits. Uh, it took me quite a while to kind of figure it out um, between you know trying to kind of digest the rules and see how it works. Um, but as you said, as you start to learn those chits, and then you know you kind of have some some foresight, some idea about what might be coming, but then you have those nasty nasty surprises. Uh, and I really like the way you described as well that sort of waiting for the hammer to fall, um, you know, as as those action points keep building, because there's times when you're like, you know, oh, thank goodness, you know, uh, nothing's going to happen to me this turn because, you know, they, they don't have enough action points for this. But uh, after a while, you know what's going to come. And so uh, I, I was always kind of like curious, like thinking back at the games that I played of it, like wondering, like, would it have been better to take several small punches uh, than to take the big hit? Um, and, and I never could answer that. You know, that, that, was, that was something that I liked about the game. It couldn't be mathed out, which I think goes back to what you were talking about with the sort of puzzle aspect of some solitaire games. Um, this, is, this is not that. Like, you, there's, there's too much going on for you to ever kind of be able to math out necessarily all of the different things that could happen and the implications of those things. And so the game to me, I always described as very fluid. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, in response to, to the, the fiddliness and kind of trickiness of that, uh, that AI, one thing that I did the first couple times I played is I just didn't even bother, uh, flipping or, or maneuvering them. I, and I didn't roll the dice either. I just moved them in a pattern until I got used to all the different actions. Um, and then after I got used to that, I kind of added that level of complexity on there. It doesn't recommend that in the rule book, but I found that to be, to be helpful as well. Well, that sounds like a good tip. Uh, something that would have been helpful yeah. for me. Where were you? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I was waiting Where for you, you to tell me about the Where were you in these videos that you speak of? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, this, is, this, was, uh, this was very much a summer game for me. You know? mm -hmm. uh, this was when, uh, you know, as a teacher, um, I have time in the summer. 
And so it was like, this was a summer game for me. You know, this was a game that I would set up and leave on the table downstairs. And I would, you know, as you said, I'd go in, I'd head down there and and play for like an hour and then just leave it and then come back to it the next day or two days later and just kind of pick up from where I was. And that's one of the things about the game that uh, I really enjoyed. There are some games that I have attempted to play that way where they end up feeling very fragmented if I walk away, come back, walk away, come back. But for some reason, I didn't really have that experience with this game. Did you find that to be true as well? No, not at all. And and that was actually very surprising to me because it feels like a game that would fall into that trap uh, just because of the very uh, systematic way that you move through a turn. First you do this, then you t- do this, then you do this. Then it can feel like, oh, wait, did I already do this or am I doing this mm-hmm, now? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think what the game kind of forced me into was telling a story. Oh, yeah, and then they built that fort. And then I responded by doing this. And so I can kind of create that narrative in my mind. So when I come back, it's almost like I came back to a book that I had bookmarked and I just open it up and start reading again because I already know what happened in the previous part of the narrative. So, Right, right. Yeah. And, and that's a, it's interesting because you've used that word narrative uh, quite a lot in, in the description of the game and in your description of the gameplay and how to play the game, um, this sort of storytelling aspect of it. Um, are there any sorts of abstractions to the game that you were not fond of? In other words, like I kind of remember uh, being a little bit sort of unsatisfied with some of the the sort of conflict resolution in the game um it it was a little more like i was i felt so nitty-gritty you know what i mean like i was down in the details with the family with the elders with decisions like i kind of felt like i was sitting in on these council meetings and then there would be these sort of grand things that would happen on the board um and they would happen suddenly and i would kind of feel like wait a minute it's almost like uh my my perspective changed too rapidly for me um and that was like one of my only kind of complaints about the game like that that kind of didn't sit right with me and it was i think because of that feeling of immersion in the narrative of the people that i was really looking at and studying did you find that or no absolutely yeah actually that's that's my only negative point of this game and it's primarily with the the two tribes that you're fighting against uh so there's the utes um and i'm blanking on the other ones but there are two uh rival tribes and whenever they kind of pop up, you have to make this decision of, am I going to try to make peace with them or am I going to go to war with them? Am I going to try to raid them and push them back as well? And I I understand, obviously, from a historical perspective, why you would include that in the game. But I think that led then to what you were referring to, which is this very strange combat resolution whenever you would go to war uh, with these rival tribes. And that you're right, it pulled me out of the game completely um, in a lot of ways until I finally kind of figured out that whole if this happens, then you do this. But then if you do this, you do this, this, and this. And that whole flow chart uh, that that comes in the game. I remember once I finally kind of mastered the basic game and then that happened, I pulled that out and went, oh my goodness, there's another thing I have to figure out now. Um, <laughs> and that really did. It, it took me a while. And like I said, I understand why it fits in the game, why it fits in the narrative of the game. But ultimately, it was just something that I feel like 
could have been left out and the game would have been fine and i don't really think it would have changed the feeling of the game uh, because the way it is it does feel sometimes a little bit intrusive yeah and, and i keep wondering like if there would be a better way to deal with that because you know, a game that has that much historical research into it, I, I really think you can't leave it out. I mean, that that might be one area where you and I disagree a little bit. Uh, you know, you you understand why it's there, but you wish it wasn't. I want it there. I just wish it it meshed a little bit better with everything else going on. I mean, I think it's important from the game perspective that people understand that the Diné were not only, you know, fighting against the sort of colonial powers of the time, but there was also conflict with other Native American people. And so I think it's important to kind of show that because that whole kind of um, notion of, uh, you know, Native Americans fighting other Native Americans, which you would think would be incongruous given the fact that there seems to be this very obvious common enemy, this very obvious common problem. And yet because of the pressure being put on everybody it kind of forces people into other decisions or rash decisions or decisions that they might not normally have made uh not to make it sound like you know all native americans before europeans came were just sitting around and and you know uh, in a circle a drum circle and uh you know having a wonderful time together all the time there was always conflict um but i think that the the arrival and and the encroachment of european powers really kind of accelerated this and exacerbated it um, and, and made them more likely to get into conflicts with each other. And so, you know, I can't necessarily go and raid that Spanish mission, but I could probably go and raid, you know, this village. And, you know, that's something that I can do. And so maybe I will do that, you know. Um, and so all of these things I think are important parts of the story. But I just didn't really um, quite get or appreciate the way in which that was handled. And, and for the life of me, I can't exactly figure out how I would do it differently or better without adding a huge amount of bloat to the game systems, which are already pretty complex. Yeah, and that's, I think, what Joel is probably struggling with as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's one of those things that's kind of like on the on the bucket list, you know, the wish list of like, boy, you know, if this game could be revisited. I know that some designers will have at times go back and revisit earlier designs and will kind of re-implement things, kind of do a 2.0 version. I mean, I think of like Martin Wallace with a study of Emerald, uh, or I'm sorry, a study in Emerald. Um, you know, the original kind of first edition is weird, quirky, wonderful Frankenstein of a game. And then he's like, okay, well, what if I tone it down just a little bit and make it just a little less weird and a little less quirky um, and stream it? And you end up with the second edition, which, you know, a lot of people really are, are liking and enjoying. So I kind of like wonder if maybe sometime there might be, uh, you know, some kind of tweak that he might add to this, uh, you know, later. Other than that, I mean, I didn't really have very many negative reactions to the game in any way, shape or form. Um, other than, and, you know, the playtime, um, the playtime was is, you know, the games that I played were quite long. Now, they were stretched out over multiple sessions because it was a solitaire game, but it, it was definitely on the longer side of a lot of the games that I, you know, will play. So I was kind of curious 
did the playtime have any effect? Because I mean, it's listed as 120 minutes, but I I never played this game in two hours. I don't know who played this thing in two hours, but it wasn't me. Um, did the playtime have any sort of uh, effect on you? Did you ever, you know, think that the game maybe was, um, uh, you know, maybe running a little longer? Did you wish it was a little more streamlined? Or were you happy with the way it was? And then as a follow-up question to that, does playtime matter in solitaire gaming in general? Oh, those are great questions. So so for me, uh, I, I never thought about the playtime once. And this was also kind of a summer game for me. It's turned into more than that. But it started off as a summer game for me as well, where I would just leave it set up on a table and come back to it every day and take a couple ter- turns, flick a, flip a couple cards and move on. Um, and so, like I said, because this game isn't really for me about winning something, it's more about the story that I'm getting out of it. And because it has these six scenarios for me, it was like working through a storybook. Um, what's going to happen this time? What's going to happen this time? And so, no, it is not 120 minutes, but it, it didn't bother me at all. Um, and so moving then into, and this is really interesting when I started working more into media and having and getting to the point where I had to play games more often and and be efficient about the time I spent playing games then it became an issue Um, because I may want to play that game but I can't leave it set up on my table now because I need to set up a different solitaire game so I can play that so I can review it for a podcast or so I can write write something on it you know there there are just so many ways that uh, board game media has kind of forced me to be a little bit more efficient and care about those things. So I think that's more why it feels like an issue to me now than it did before. Um, and so in that same vein, I think as board game media people, time is always going to be an issue for us. Um, but generally in solitaire games, I think that's one of the greatest benefits that they have because it's just like a video game, except it takes way more physical space, right? Um, I can, (laughs) I can engage in it. I can play it. I can get to the next level and then I can fold it up, put it, put it away. If you're playing something like Pathfinder, for instance, and then come back to it later and start from where I left off. Um, and so I do think that in solitaire gaming in general, I would hope that it's really not that much of an issue for people. And they actually see it as one of the great benefits is that this game may take me 16 hours to play, but it doesn't matter because I can just come back to it whenever I want to. And I don't have to get a big group of people together. Yeah, that's uh, definitely kind of mirrored my memories and experiences with solo gaming as well, which is um, I found that uh, when I did do solo gaming, and, and, and I don't do a ton of it, but when I did it, there was a lot of time for study, you know, and, and I'm not even necessarily talking about study like, you know, looking things up on the Internet or reading a book. Um, and, and by the way, what we're talking about books, definitely check out Blood and Thunder, a uh, really good book that is all about this particular time period. Um, really enjoyed reading that. Um, but anyway, uh, no, the kind of studying I'm talking about is just that kind of fun of just kind of going downstairs, standing in front of the table and just looking at the board. <laughs> yeah. And just kind of considering it and thinking like, OK, all right. So what could I do now? What if I do this? And you kind of spin out all these different ideas and scenarios in your head. And this is why, like, one of the reasons why I always kind of thought I had this, like, sneaking suspicion uh, that maybe my wife um, 
would be a good solo gamer, you know, because she's one of those people that uh, will sometimes be accused of that analysis paralysis, you know, of of sitting and trying to kind of min-max things or, you know, really looking at things, considering things. I'm always kind of, you know, uh, exacerbated with her sometimes <laughs> on a first play of a game because I'm like, oh, my God, don't try to win it. Just play it, you know? Like, yep. I, I don't care. Like, you know, why are you trying to figure out how to master this thing 10 minutes into it? Like, just... <laughs> play it i you know i'm always saying to her like push the buttons pull the levers see what happens <laughs> and then the next time uh you know you you'll you'll have an idea of what to do but like that's just not in her nature like you know she kind of feels like well it's not so much trying to win it's trying to understand and i want to understand what it is i'm supposed to be doing um, and so I've, you know, I've often kind of thought like, I wonder if she would be like a good solo gamer because you really do have that luxury of time to just kind of like consider things and think about things and spin things out in your head. And there's no pressure. There's no one by you saying, you know, Hey, Hey, what you doing there? You know, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what's, you know, what's going on? Hey, uh, you got to do something soon. Um, you know, or, or my family has a, a nice little song that we sing to each other. It's called the I'm getting older song <laughs> where, you know, my son will occasionally sing it or I'll sing it to him. You know, it's I'm getting older waiting for you. Um, and so like, you know, when you're in a social kind of uh, more setting with other people, you have to take those things into consideration because it becomes clear that people might get a little irritated with you. Like if you're taking too long, you don't have that pressure in this kind of game. And that can be very enjoyable. Like that can be probably one of my favorite things about solo gaming. So if I'm looking at games like that, like you mentioned Pathfinder, or in some ways I even think of Netrunner. Now I know Netrunner is not a solo game. It's a two-player game. But like the amount of time that I'll sit like just looking at cards and thinking about like what could I put here? Or the last time I played, this is this is what happened to me. So what can I do about that? And you just have that luxury of time. You don't have to make a decision right away. There's no pressure. Um, and that's one of the things I think that can be great uh, about solo gaming. Um, so I, I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that perspective because that time thing, and then of course you bring up the whole uh, first world problem that we have of like, you know, uh, oh, you know, I've got to look at a game and review it, and then yep. everybody out there listening is like, yeah, yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and what I've found is uh, when I have kind of my AP issues when I'm doing solo games, uh, it actually makes me not have AP issues when I'm playing with other people because I'm so cognizant of other people in the room that I try to just mm -hmm, go, hey, mm -hmm. let's just take our turns and see what happens. And I think another aspect of that, though, is because and I'm sure this is true for you, too, as someone who looks at a lot of rule books, I know all the levers and, and stuff that I need to pull really well. I don't know what they do yet. I just know that they do something and I want to pull them and everyone else is going, wait, what's the lever again? And so right, they're right. just trying to yeah. figure out which levers there are to pull. And so I'm I tend to be the person that sings the getting older song Um so it is nice then to kind of retreat and go, you know what, I'm going to be the AP guy. I'm going to take my time making my decisions. Uh, and so it helps me kind of cultivate some patience that I probably need to back, bring back into my social gaming. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, that's probably a good point yeah. for all of us. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's kind of circle back to the game. One of the things you talked about are scenarios, yeah? Yes. 
So what can you tell me about uh, the scenarios and what can you tell me about uh, maybe things that you are your favorites or that you particularly like or enjoy? Uh, what would what would you say to people about that? Um, well, the first couple scenarios are probably the ones you're going to play multiple, multiple times just because they're the easy to medium difficulties. Um, the, the first scenario is they say it's the easiest scenario, which doesn't mean that it's actually yeah, right. easy to win. <laughs> it just means that it's short. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> and then the second scenario is really the one where you get the at least a whole time period that you're kind of dealing with. It's a more epic game. I think it has uh, 36 or no, 45 cards in it as opposed to the 18 that are in the first scenario. So right, it's a right. pretty significant change. Um, and then from there, you just kind of ramp up and you play through different historical situations. Um, the one that, that tends to make me happiest when I play it, uh, and I mean that, of course, in a kind of a dark way, um, is the the rope thrower, the um, the Kit Carson one, where you're kind of walking through right. that whole progression of the story. And the way that uh, this works mechanically is there are different historical cards, like I, I kind of uh, alluded to this earlier, that you're going to split up and then take your common deck, which consists of operation cards and ceremony cards, and you're just going to divvy that up into equal piles and so as you work through each pile you'll eventually get to the first historical movement which triggers victory point check and then you get and it kind of creates different conditions that change the game and then after you play through the next few cards you you're, you're going to hit another one and another and another until you finally trigger that final event uh in the rope thrower it's Kit Carson and he actually the only text on his card is go to this place in the rule book and look up this giant block of text that is now what you have to obey as you continue playing the game uh to determine whether or not you win so that's kind of that's how the scenarios work they're they're almost uh five different stories that you can kind of walk through and they increase in difficulty as you move through them and what's one of the things that i liked was that you know that whole notion of the um escalation of the game and the sort of uh, unfolding of the game um, as you kind of got more comfortable with the systems like I must have played that introductory scenario like four times before I even tried the second scenario like it took that long for me to kind of wrap my my mind around it and I'm usually pretty good at picking up games fairly quickly you know uh, but this one was was a little obtuse um, but once I got it I got it and, and I was kind of fully invested and bought into it um, and so the, the different scenarios, like you said, are fascinating because of the different historical kind of situations and periods that you're going to be able to explore. And to me, you know, I love that kind of thing about this game and other games like it because there's a lot of game in the box then. You know, just when you think you've kind of got a handle on something and, you know, you've you've kind of explored it and, you know, there's more there, but you're like you're hungry for something different then there's something there for you. And so I think it's important that people understand that there's those different scenarios. Um, you know, you're not just going to be doing the same thing. You're not playing the same game each time. So thanks for outlining those for yeah, us. Absolutely. 
Um, now we've spent a, a good amount of time, you know, we've talked about the, um, you know, the history a little bit behind the game. We've talked about the mechanisms, uh, rather you've talked about them and, and described them so well. Uh, we've talked about the art, uh, the board, um, we've talked about scenarios, we've talked about some barriers to the game, you know, some, some, uh, things that, you know, people need to be aware of if they're thinking about approaching this one. It's not, yeah, as easy as some some other games that I picked up, but it's definitely, as you said, it was one that is well worth the investment in time and energy to kind of really dive into and explore. You would agree, yes? Absolutely, yes. So is there anything else about this game that uh, you would like to kind of talk about or, you know, cover before we kind of uh, think about wrapping up our conversation about Navajo Wars? Yeah, I think the the final thought that I would just kind of throw out there is... Um, this game is going to constantly be in the conversation of, is this a game? Is it an activity or is it a simulation, right? That, that constant conversation of, is this really a game, so right. to speak? And, and what I want to say is it's all three of those things. And depending on where you're at in what stage of it, it's going to feel different. So sometimes it feels like a game when I'm, when I'm doing all the different kind of steps to methodically move through a phase, right? That is a game. Um, and, do I win or lose? That's kind of part of the game. But at the same time, it's a simulation. Uh, like I said, there's some stuff in there that I think, wow, this really convolutes it. But it's 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 a simulation in a lot of ways of this historical period. And so you can't leave those things out. Um, and it's an activity. This is something that I, I value not because I can check it off my list of things to do, but because I'm actually learning and growing and changing. It's, it's a learning activity. And so if you kind of go into it with that mentality, um, and don't think of it just like I'm playing this, like I would play pandemic, uh, then I think what you expect out of it will change. And therefore, uh, kind of the opinion that you come out of that experience with will be more positive than negative. Well, that's definitely sage advice because it is definitely in that class of games that you mentioned that is, you know, I think about uh, some of Phil Eklund's games. You know, these are also games that, you know, people have these discussions. Is it a game or is it a simulation? And uh, I've never quite understood exactly why those two things have to be mutually exclusive. And I think that you really um, said it and summarized how that doesn't have to be the case very, uh, very well there, that you're going to hit on all three of those cylinders at different points during the game. And so as long as you're not going into it with the expectation that it's going to be all of this or all of that, uh, I think it will uh, definitely be something that uh, you'll find to be as intriguing as I did and as intriguing as you did. Um, You know, this is a game that uh, I played quite a bit when I first got it. Um, and you know, it kind of sat languishing on my shelf. Uh, I admit, uh, for quite a while, um, you know, I heard you make reference, even if I only play it once a year, I'm going to keep this one. And, uh, I I did decide to let mine, uh, go. Um, I had an auction not too long ago and, and, and I did decide to move it along just because I haven't had that time to play it. And there are so many people out there. I knew who were looking for it, waiting to see if there's going to be a reprint. I was like, you know what? It, it had a lot, my decision to let the game go had a lot to do with what you just said, which is this is an opportunity, I think, for people to really kind of immerse themselves in this 
topic and this subject matter. And as a teacher and as a person who does cover some Native American history with my students, I want to give somebody else the opportunity to check that out because there's just such a, a lot that can be gleaned from playing you know, this, this little game in this little box from GMT. Um, you know, Joel has done just such a, an amazing job of designing something that does all the things you said. It's going to teach you. It's going to give you uh, – you're going to have an emotional response to it. And you're going to have fun mentally trying to kind of figure out the systems of the game and how to do it, how to hang in there, how to survive, how to respond to problems. And so I, I totally wholeheartedly agree with you that this is definitely a game that people should check out. So uh, I want to thank you for taking the time, uh, for being patient, um, you know, and waiting for us to finally be able to get this put together. And I also want to kind of say out there, um, you know, to, to you, you're like the second or third person now that I've talked to that uh, has been kind enough to say, hey, you know, I listened to the show and, you know, I was kind of waiting for you to do an episode about this game or waiting for you to do an episode about that game. And I really appreciate the fact that you kind of were like, well, why not me? You know, and so uh, I appreciate you reaching out because I need people who have more expertise than I do with the game to really be able to kind of do the game justice. Um, You know, as you said, I play games quite a bit before I talk about them or review them, but never usually to the mastery of the people that I have on. And so uh, I'm kind of like always happy when people reach out and say, hey, can I talk about this game? Because, And I want to encourage others to do that because I think it's a great way to kind of spread the word about games that people find really exceptional or special because no one at the rate that games are coming out can possibly cover them all. There's just no way you can do it. And so, uh, you know, I rely on the generosity of people who listen to say, hey, why not me? I'm going to write it and I'm going to say, hey, let's talk about this game. So I want to thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. And, And I would say if anyone out there is skeptical about whether or not they can do it, even though they're very passionate about a game, I would definitely encourage you to give it a shot because taking the time to really sit down and think about what what exactly do I want to say about this game so that other people can hear how great I think it is, being able to sit down and think through that and then verbalize it is a just a a great exercise to to practice and so um, I I just thank you for creating a context where people can actually have an outlet to do that kind of thing I think it's a wonderful uh, wonderful benefit to the hobby well thank you very much Derek and uh, I wish you the best of luck and uh, I'll be listening to your future endeavors both on the Dice Tower and on the what did you play this week podcast thing did I get that right Oh, you nailed it. Yes, yes. All right, good, good, yes. Um, So anyway, uh, you know, I want to say thanks again. And uh, to everybody out there listening, uh, thanks for tuning in and have a great night.